Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And today, giving everything you need to win your Thanksgiving dinner political battles. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to The Bill Press Show on this Thanksgiving Eve, Wednesday, November 21st, 2018. My name is Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press. I haven't been in this chair for a while, so it feels very good to be here with you. As we really fill you up, not just on uh, Thanksgiving deliciousness, but on all of the political news of the week to, you know, get you ready to have those tough political conversations, which, by the way, I'm going to avoid this Thanksgiving dinner. And I'll tell you why, because I'm spending it with my brother, my younger brother, who's a bit of a, a bit of a Trump supporter. Oh, um, goodness, Peter. And, and Peter so, is, like, having the same struggles we were talking he's about having, this. Listen, I bet a lot of people around the country are sitting down with family members who are not only on the up, opposite side of the aisle, but it feels sometimes like on the opposite side of the world, the opposite side of the country. Um, and how do you have those conversations? I just don't. It's gotten to the point where I think that more and more people are falling back on that, which is it scares me a little bit for the state of politics. Yeah. But I totally understand and support your decision to do this <laughs> as a matter of self-care. Thank Igor. you. It is a matter of self-care. Yeah. Nobody... And also family preservation. Listen, nobody needs a screaming match over the dinner table. You can't come to a common place when you can't even agree on the facts. And that's where we are as a country. And so it's going to be a struggle for a lot of people. And, and we'll do our best this show to if you're going to engage in this kind of battle, to at least be armed with the facts and the arguments. We'll talk a bit about the president's love affair with Saudi Arabia, the, uh, let's say, unusual statement he put out yesterday afternoon about his continued relationship with the Saudis and his decision to stand by the crown prince despite overwhelming evidence from his own intelligence agencies that the crown prince 
knew or even directed the killing of um, the Washington Post journalist. Uh, and then we'll talk about the Mississippi race. It's the last Senate race of this midterm election. A big debate yesterday, and the Republican, Republican there, Cindy Hyde-Smith, finally offering some kind of an apology for the comments she made about having a front row to a public lynching. Um, more on that as Republicans really uh, are having some anxiety about keeping that seat. They're in a runoff now. It was an election that was simply a formality uh, for the heavily red state of Mississippi. But now uh, it might be in contention. And then my good friend Chelsea Parsons of uh, the Center for American Progress, Miles Stomping Ground, will join us to talk about my favorite issue, guns, guns in America, where we stand today, and what do the latest shootings uh, in, in places like Chicago and Philadelphia tell us about the American gun crisis? You know, if there was ever a divisive issue for Thanksgiving, it could be the gun issue. Uh, that That is one I, too, will avoid at my Thanksgiving table this year. Yes, I think I avoid that conversation with family <laughs> at all times. At all times. Always. At all times. Yeah. Although, you know, you can find common ground. We'll get more on that uh, with Chelsea. But the important question for me this holiday season is what are you thankful for? It's a tough political arena. It's a tough political moment. We are throwing people throw breaking news at us every second. It's why, by the way, I turned off all news alerts on my phone and have felt so much better ever since. Look at this, Igor, like radical self-care here. Exactly. No Thanksgiving political conversations, no political news alerts. It's Wednesday, November 21st, 2018. The Bill Press Show. Everything you need to know to have a delicious political conversation with that side of gravy. This is the Bill Press Show. That's right, the Bill Press Show on this Wednesday, November 21st, 2018. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press on this Thanksgiving Eve. Oh boy, have we got a show for you. We'll go over all of the latest political news of the week, including the latest on the president's love affair with Saudi Arabia, despite overwhelming evidence from American intelligence agencies that the Saudi crown prince knew about and possibly even directed the assassination, the gruesome murder of the Washington Post columnist. Uh, the president, in a bizarre statement yesterday, claimed that he was putting America first by maintaining our relationship with the Saudis. And then we'll talk about the Mississippi Senate race. It's the last open seat of the 2018 uh, midterm elections. And in a debate yesterday, the Republican there, Cindy Hyde-Smith, who was supposed to just coast to um, in this special election, the runoff that they're having in Mississippi, uh, she had made comments earlier this month about, well, joke, a joke she claimed was a joke about a public lynching. Yesterday, she apologized at the debate. 
And then uh, my friend Chelsea Parsons, uh, who's a uh, gun violence prevention policy expert, will join us and we'll have a little powwow on, uh, on that issue. As you guys know, I spent years at the Center for American Progress uh, and now run a group called Guns Down America, gunsdownamerica.org. Uh, where we're building a future with fewer guns. But I want to take a moment uh, on this uh, Thanksgiving Eve to talk about what I'm thankful about uh, this year. And I want to ask you what you're thankful about. You know, oftentimes we're inundated by all of this political news, by breaking news, by depressing, horrible things coming out of the Trump White House. So And so it's important to take a moment to take a couple of minutes to really think through and look around what are we thankful for in our lives? What are we thankful for in this political environment? So I want to hear from you. You can tweet at me at Igor Volsky at I-G-O-R-V-O-L-S-K-Y or at BP Show. That's probably a Twitter handle you know much better at BP Show. What are you thankful for this holiday season? I'll start. I'll start and say that after the midterm elections, when you had over 43 members of Congress, NRA-backed members of Congress, I'm shocked I'm going there, right? NRA-backed <laughs> members of Congress who lost their seats, many of whom lost their seats to candidates who ran on gun safety. It's a real sea change in Democratic politics because for the last 20 years, Democrats have been afraid of the gun issue, have stayed away from the gun issue, hanging on to some real baggage from the 1990s when they thought that the NRA was unbeatable, that they couldn't talk about gun safety in a real and a bold way. Well, this year, all of that changed as you had candidates from Texas to California to Louisiana to Colorado talking about reducing gun violence, talking about background checks, talking about banning assault weapons. Um, it's a real new day, and I think it will show the party and it will show the American people that you can take on the gun lobby and you can win against the gun lobby, particularly at a time when you have so much new energy in the gun issue, and especially as the lobby continues to lose support both from corporate America, but also from the American people. So this holiday season, I declare that I am thankful that our politicians are finally closing that gap between where the American people are, which is they want tougher gun laws now, uh, and where they have always been, which is in this kind of soft place in the middle about maybe give us some background checks at some point, but we're not really going to ask for them. That gap between where the public is on guns and where a lot of our politicians are, it is slowly closing. And the results of the midterm election, I think, will, uh, will, will make that even more of a reality. So let me know, what are you thankful, thankful for this holiday season? At BP Show on Twitter, at Igor Volsky on Twitter. Ray, what are you thankful for this holiday season? Let's go around a little bit here. Yeah, I think that there's <clears throat> a lot to be thankful for, especially after the 2018 election. Women, this was a huge year for women. 
Um, more seats than ever before held in Congress. And it's primarily thank you to Democratic women. And I would also like to point out that we still make up about 50% of the U.S. population, but less than 25% of Congress. So while this is a huge step forward, and I don't <laughs> mean to minimize the success, I do think that we should keep pushing forward. We should keep pushing forward, and we will keep pushing forward, especially as the, the dem demography of the country continues to change and continues to shift. I mean, how exciting, though, you have. I remember after the Pittsburgh shooting, you know, I typically uh, do this thing where I call out lawmakers who tweet thoughts and prayers but don't actually do anything to reduce gun violence. And after the Pittsburgh shooting, because we were so close to the election, what I did was I not only tweeted out how much the lawmakers who just send thoughts and prayers got from the NRA. But I also linked to the donation page of their political challenger so that people ha could actually do something to help unseat that thoughts and prayers lawmaker. And what surprised me, and you know, I, I haven't been following uh, the, the midterm elections terribly closely now. I mostly work on guns, and so I'm obviously micro-focused on that issue. And what surprised me were how many women were challenging all of these men who were sending their thoughts and prayers. And it was just incredibly inspiring. And a lot of these women were women of color. A lot of these women were LGBT women. A lot of these women were first-time candidates who were so repulsed by, was, by what was happening in our politics that they threw their hat in the ring in a very real way. And as you point out, many of them won this midterm election. What a great thing to be thankful what an, for. What an amazing thing to be thankful for. And we had um, Congressman Dan Kildee on last week from Michigan. And he said that the best part of going into the halls of Congress next year is that he feels like it looks a little bit more like America. Yes. And I feel like that is such a beautiful way to put it. And for that, I truly am grateful that even in the bleakest of times, there are still people that are pushing and fighting for change and to correct the course of this ship gone askew. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it can't be minimized and that hope can't be lost because then there really is nothing to push forward for. It's a real testament to the human spirit, right? That in, in these dark times, at a time when a political candidate won an election and, and, and attained so much power by lying, by saying just disgusting, vile things, by never apologizing, that we still uh, have people who who would dare enter the political process uh, and who would who would fight for that change. And I have to say, you know, I, I was saying I turned off all of the news alerts on my phone because I felt like I was getting inundated. I felt like every time I looked at my phone, it was just a, a, I became more depressed, I became angry, I became frustrated, that I was just a sadder person. And sometimes I also take news breaks and I say to myself, I'm just not gonna follow this story, right? So when the story broke about uh, Trump attacking the commander who directed the Osama bin Laden raid, I thought to myself, I mean, this is infuriating, and if I follow this story closely, I will literally lose my mind. But then at the same time, I also feel bad about it because I feel bad about sitting out because presumably there's something I could do, there's something I could say, there's something I could 
tweet. I should be informed about this. This is happening in our democracy. And so that balance between taking a step back and finding a moment to just get out of all that noise while at the same time <laughs> dealing with the guilt that you yes. may feel about stepping back. So how do you balance that? Um, and I wish that I could remember where I read this. But as I once saw on Twitter, <laughs> which is not something I like saying, um, they compared this exact sentiment that you're describing to um, a chorus. You know how sometimes there's a really long note that the entire section, like let's say the Sopranos are holding mm -hmm. a really long note that goes on and on. No one person can carry that note from start to finish. And so what they do is they sit back and they alternate their breaths. They're oh, stepping back. That. And so it's like the same idea that we can't, as people, as humans, we can't wrap our heads around everything 100% of the time and still have the energy to live a normal life where you go home, you see your pets and you do the things that you love and you eat food and have the energy to systematically attack these things that we see as unjust like it just doesn't work that way so when you take a break i don't think that you should feel guilty i think you should recharge and trust that people are carrying it on and step in when you can <laughs> at bp show at igor volsky how are you achieving that balance and what are you doing this holiday season at the thanksgiving table are you talking about politics or are you focusing on what you're thankful for? Addy Gorvolsky at BP Show. A comment here from Twitter. No screaming, but our job as white guys is to talk to those rather unwoke people like your bro. Oh, like your bro, Igor Volsky at BP Show. It's a privilege just to sit down with people you disagree with. Uh, uh, and it's a privilege to sit down with people you disagree with. So a comment here about... Uh, having those conversations and maybe having those conversations in a uh, respectful uh, and reasonable way. Of course, the challenge is to ensure that those conversations don't become screaming matches at the dinner table. Yes, we also have people weighing in at BP Show. Our friend Ben Wickler, the director of Move On hey, here in DC. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ben. We're so glad that you're listening if you're still tuned in. Um, but he says that what he is thankful for, and this is a huge one, Florida Second Chances Ballot Initiative yes. and replacing Scott Walker with a governor who gives a damn. That's yes, right. Ben. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Ben Wickler. Uh, 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 Florida, the midterm elections. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people in the aftermath of the those initial results were a little upset about how uh, the gubernatorial race was turning out. Um, uh, but all, how the Senate race was turning out. Uh, but ultimately, the passage of an amendment that would bring so many new voters into the political process, into our political system, is something, of course, we should all be celebrating. Our question this morning is, what are you thankful for this Thanksgiving season? It's so easy to get depressed, so easy to get dispirited in this political climate. Let us know at BP Show at Igor Volsky. Um, but let's go now to yesterday's debate in Mississippi. Now, this is the last remaining contest of the 28 race between Republican Cindy Hyde-Smith and Democrat Mike 
SP. Uh, the Republicans thought they were really just going to cruise to victory, victory here. Mississippi has not uh, elected a Democratic senator since 1982, I believe. So this was going to be a cakewalk. But the race changed after comments surfaced from Cindy Hyde-Smith in which she joked about having a front row seat to a public lynching. Here she is. So the audio quality here is kind of bad, but if you listen closely, it comes about, you'll hear it. So there she is presumably joking uh, about having a front row seat to a public lynching. The comments sparked an outcry and were followed by other remarks she made about denying the right to vote to liberals. Now, for days, Cindy Hyde-Smith, who uh, took over the seat, was appointed to the seat by retiring Senator uh, Thad Corcoran, and this was going to be her full term that she was running for. Uh, she claimed that those comments were jokes, and she refused to apologize for days. Republicans here in D.C. grew nervous about how the comments were going to be interpreted by Mississippi's uh, African-American population, by progressives in Mississippi, and even by some Republicans in the state who are embarrassed by the state's deep racial divide and fairly ugly racial history. So yesterday, at a debate with Mike Espy, Cindy Hyde-Smith appeared to apologize for those comments, but quickly pivoted to say that they were used against her to score political points. Here she is at last night's debate. This comment was twisted and it was turned into a weapon to be used against me, a political weapon used for nothing but personal and political gain by my opponent. That's the type of politics Mississippians are sick and tired of. So she made comments at a political rally. <laughs> and those comments became a factor in her political race. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that what you say matters? That when you're running for public elected office to represent the people of your state, that what you say in a public forum could be interpreted in a political way. How unusual for politicians. Mike Espy, the former uh, Clinton cabinet member and former congressman responded to Hyde Smith. I don't know what's in your heart, but we all know what came out of your mouth. And it went viral you know, within the first three minutes around the world. And so it's caused our state harm. It's given our state another black eye that we don't need. Now, Democrats uh, who have been, uh, who in the beginning, uh, I, I think were proud of the kind of race that Mike Espy ran, by all accounts he ran a strong campaign, but we're never certain, uh, we're, we're certainly uh, never comfortable with the fact that he would flip that seat in deep red Mississippi. Now <clears throat> there's renewed energy around his candidacy and you have prominent Democrats from all across the country, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, literally two opposite sides of that country, of our country, um, campaigning on SP's behalf and trying to inject momentum into this Mississippi race. The challenge for Espy, however, is twofold. Not only does he have to increase the 
uh, uh, the turnout amongst the African-American community to incredibly high levels in a runoff that some people may not even know about. But he also has to secure about one fourth of the white vote in Mississippi, and he he got a uh, a smaller percentage than that um, on uh, on November sixth. So the question is, will he be able to to push it over the finish line? Will have to see when is that November twenty eighth? I think right is the special election. I believe that's in right. Let me double check the date. Uh, November twenty eighth, uh, Mississippi voters are going to be going to the polls. Uh, one final time this midterm election season uh, to decide the race between Cindy Hyde-Smith and Mike Espy. Of course, just a joke, just one of those regular jokes about public lynchings. Uh, how funny is that? Now, Donald Trump leaving the White House yesterday to go and spend six days at uh, Mar-a-Lago held a impromptu uh, press conference on the White House lawn uh, and said all all sorts of things uh, that I'm looking at our audio now about about which which of these we should highlight. Um, you know, in in recent days, and this has really been dogging both the White House and and Saudi Arabia and and the rest of the world in outrage about the way uh, the Washington Post columnist. Uh, lost his life, uh, possibly dismembered uh, at the Saudi embassy in Turkey um, with intelligence agencies all around the world and here in the United States <sighs> concluding that that murder of the Saudi dissident, uh, a reporter who continued to speak truth to power, uh, who continued to challenge uh, the Saudi royal family and ultimately lost his life uh, in that process, that his murder was directed by the highest level, uh, highest levels of power in Saudi Arabia, by the Saudi crown prince. There appears to be global consensus on this fact. Uh, and the White House, which has been under pressure to respond, uh, applied some sanctions to, uh, to Saudi, uh, Saudi citizens, but has refused to take further action and has refused to uh, officially sanction Saudi Arabia or cut business ties with Saudi Arabia. And this president, who in 2015 on the campaign trail and also in 2016 bragged about his connections to Saudi Arabia, bragged about selling apartments to the Saudis, about selling yachts to the Saudis, um, about uh, Saudi officials staying in his hotels and making up for lost revenue, uh, said yesterday as he was leaving for Mar-a-Lago that actually he has no personal connection to Saudi Arabia. I don't make deals with Saudi Arabia. I don't have money from Saudi Arabia. I have nothing to do with Saudi Arabia. I couldn't care less. In 2016, Donald Trump said, I make a lot of money from them, referring to Saudi Arabia. They buy all sorts of my stuff. They pay me millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. And reports surfaced earlier this year that revenues at Trump hotels in Manhattan and Chicago had been in decline for the last two years. And that Saudi business officials booked hundreds of rooms at Trump properties in order to help Donald Trump's hotels increase revenue. And in fact, they did 
uh, on the backs of those Saudi purchases. Uh, in a, I, I, let me just pull up the statement here that Donald Trump issued yesterday from the White House. It was the most unusual statement because it literally read like uh, like a Trump rally or a Trump interview um, in a in really shocking tones. And you got the sense that Trump dictated this statement um, to somebody and they literally typed it up and sent it out. Uh, it had exclamation points um, and was was really something. Let me just see if I can if I can pull it up. But the 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 breadth of it was that he would not cut further ties with Saudi Arabia. He would not end military purchases to Saudi Arabia because, quote unquote, uh, he wants to put America first. Now, in this statement, Trump true to form, undermined and questioned the abilities of America's uh, intelligence agencies who had concluded that Saudi Arabia, uh, that the crown prince there was responsible. Here is the statement, quote, our intelligence agencies continue to assess all information, but it could very well be that the crown prince had knowledge of this tragic event. Maybe he did and maybe he didn't, exclamation point. Trump continues, we may never know all of the facts surrounding the murder of Mr. Jamal Khashoggi. In any case, our relationship is with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They have been a great ally in our very important fight against Iran. Uh, a, a shocking statement for, for, uh, for many reasons, uh, one of which being it wasn't too long ago that the Republican Party under the leadership of George W. Bush, talked about American values, American principles, uh, and leading with those values all around the world. And under this president, that party has established those kinds of principles and seem to be prioritizing Trump's business relationships uh, against all else, because it's not clear from this statement, it's not clear from White House officials exactly what strategic purpose Saudi Arabia is serving for the United States. But what is clear is that when you have unanimous global consensus that the Saudi crown prince knew something about the murder, the brutal murder of a journalist, and you dismiss that intelligence, uh, you're sending a message to dictators and strongmen all around the world that they can crack down on dissent, that they can uh, do and treat the media and their critics uh, in however brutal way they'd like. But if they have a relationship with this president, if they have a business relationship with the Trump family, that all of that will be excused, that it will be shrugged off, that it will be pushed aside. Uh, and you know that's a sentiment that Republicans just, you know, eight, 10 years ago uh, would not have stood by. Uh, and I'm looking here for Republican reactions to uh, to to that to that uh, statement the president issued yesterday. Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul said the following on Twitter. The president indicates that Saudi Arabia is the lesser is the lesser of two evils compared to Iran, and so the U.S. won't punish Saudi Arabia for the brutal killing and dismemberment of, of, a, 
of a dissident journalist in their consulate. Uh, he goes on to say, we should at the very least not reward Saudi Arabia with our sophisticated armaments that they in turn use to bomb civilians. Um, he continued, I'm pretty sure this statement, this is from Rand Paul talking about Trump's statement yesterday in Saudi Arabia. I'm pretty sure this statement is Saudi Arabia first, not America first. Um, and so uh, uh, and, and so you have some Republican pushback there. And Mitt Romney, who's the uh, Utah senator-elect Mitt Romney, he's back, uh, tweeted, America can't excuse and minimize the brutal and gruesome murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a U.S. resident, a columnist. Our country is defined by human values, by principle above convenience, and by commitment to morality. We must subject the perpetrators of this outrage to withering sanction uh, that's from Mitt Romney. And the question, of course, is what will Republican senators do? How will Republican senators act? Will they follow up this criticism with action? Will they push this president to do more? Will they will they push legislation uh, to sanction Saudi Arabia and to sanction uh, the Saudi prince? Uh, that we'll have to see. And we'll get into that in just a second with uh, Erica Fine, she's the advocacy director for Win Without War. All the latest on what's happening uh, with Saudi Arabia, how this president is responding, um, and what an appropriate response to something like this looks like. You're listening to The Bill Press Show. I'm Gravolsky. We'll be right back. On your radio, on TV, and online. This is The Bill Press Show. The Bill Press Show on this Thanksgiving Eve, Wednesday, November 21st, 2018. The question still stands, what are you thankful for this holiday season? In a crazy political time, I always say, take five minutes, find something positive. Think about that before you continue reading your Trump story at BP Show at Igor Volsky. And joining us now is Erica Fine, I, I, I literally, okay, Erica Fine, she's the advocacy director for Win Without War on Twitter, E.N. Fine. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you You so have a, much. such a simple name, but I'm so stressed about <laughs> screwing up people's names. Igor has a track record. Um, that I, uh, yeah. Well, you know, people do say Fiend or Fain a lot. So oh, okay, good. You got it right on the first Well, you know, as somebody, yes, I appreciate that, but so, somebody who's named Igor Volsky, I should not be having such struggles. Uh, because, but you know, I like to be on both sides of it. I like to both mispronounce and to be mispronounced. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, here I am, Erica Fine. She's the advocacy director for Win Without War. Erica, we're going to get into the latest with Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. uh, and the president's crazy statement that he put out yesterday afternoon um, and how the world really is responding uh, to that brutal killing. But first, since I've been asking everybody this, uh, let me ask you, what are you thankful for this Thanksgiving season? Uh, now, you can't say the midterms because that's an easy <laughs> answer. Both of us gave that answer. So I'm going to give you a little bit of time to, to cling on to something else, some other positive development in the world uh, of 2018. Positive development in the world. Um, let me start with what I'm grateful for personally okay, that's within, a good, within yes. my own life, yes. um, which is... Good friends and family, 
Very important. Um, yes, I was just at a gala um, over the weekend celebrating my friend's father who started a lupus research uh, foundation. Oh. And I got to see a lot of old friends and family, and it oh, was just terrific. a really wonderful thing. And it reminded me of what I need to cling to in these dark times, yes. which is the people that The people are in around my life. you. Yes. Um, in the world, you know. It's harder. In the world, it's harder. Yes. <laughs> where, um, I guess the question is, where are we winning without war, right? That's right. You know what? Let me just talk about South Korea for a second. Yes. Um, president Moon, uh, the, the South Korean president, was elected with a mandate to bring peace to the, re to, to the peninsula. Um, but even before that, I mean, South Korea was in pretty dark times. And they were able to overcome a fairly right-wing um, government with uh, protests. Millions and millions and millions of people came out to the streets for years um, with this candlelight protest. Mm -hmm. And they were able to oust and then get um, the former uh, President Park Geun-hei impeached. And now they have a liberal president. A in, template, really. Yes, a template for us exactly, all. Exactly. <laughs> in the midst of uh, all of this rising authoritarianism around the world. And so, you know, I will just say we have to do whatever we can uh, to make sure that Moon's victory is sustained. And that means standing with the people of South Korea. That, you know, that is a bright example, a shining light in a world where you have a shift in some places towards right wing extremism, uh, certainly slightly different than what's happening in this country. Um, and thank you for, 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 I didn't even know about this. Yeah, yeah, uh, we, we're happy to talk about it later, too. <laughs> uh, well, well, there you go, a model for us all uh, in, in South Korea. Let's turn to Saudi Arabia, however, where yes. things are quite a bit darker. Um, with the president's statement yesterday um, casting doubt on whether or not the crown prince knew of that brutal murder and saying, well, maybe he did and maybe he didn't. Despite what appears to be a global assessment um, from intelligence agencies here in the United States, um, uh, Turkey and elsewhere in the world, that the crown prince was involved, that he may have in fact directed um, this murder. Let's maybe step back and, and, and give folks a bit of a, of a background of how we got to this place. Mm, yes. Well, um, I mean, we may never know, right? Uh, <laughs> but so, you know, the United States has been in alliance with Saudi Arabia, though it's been an informal alliance for uh, many, many decades, um, certainly under the Obama administration, though he was trying to sort of realign U.S. interests uh, in the region. But certainly they, uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia were very close under Obama. Uh, they, it has only grown and, you know, Trump has only grown increasingly close with the crown prince, um, and, and with the kingdom. And we remember his visit to Saudi Arabia, right. exactly. uh, it was, where he took part in all kinds of sword ceremonies, got a special medal right. from the crown prince. Yeah. Saudi uh, Arabia was the first country that the United States president visited. I mean, you don't get, uh, you don't send a stronger signal than that. Um, and so I think what happened yesterday was almost entirely predictable as much as it was surprising and shocking to everybody um, because we have this blank check approach to Saudi Arabia. And it goes well beyond the killing of a dissident, although this is an important symbol 
uh, sorry, a dissident and a journalist. Um, This is an important symbol for what Saudi Arabia is all about. Um, Saudi Arabia has also been acting with total impunity and actual military support from the United States government in a nearly four-year-long intervention into Yemen. Um, And so what the president's statement showed yesterday unequivocally is that he is not going to act to curtail any of Saudi um, or, you know, its partner states like the UAE, any of their um, bad behavior, their war crimes, their atrocities, their human rights violations. So I think the question that people have is why? If the United States isn't being led by traditional, what we like to say, American values and American principles of not cracking down on dissent, for instance, um, what are we being led by in this Trump era? What is motivating Trump, despite the global outrage around this killing, to stand by the crown prince? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a number of things that are motivating Trump. I think, you know, the new Congress has to get to the bottom of the Kushner-Mohammed bin Salman relationship. Um, They were texting each other early on last year. Um, You know, they're very close. They're trying to do all sorts of deals. And I think, you know, the personal financial motives of this president um, and the people that are surrounding him are definitely a factor. Um, And, of course, you know, you've got the sort of Um, boogeyman in the region that uh, is uh, Iran. And so, you know, there's sort of an alignment of interests in a way that we're seeing that wasn't exactly there under Obama, which is um, we're going to, you know, stop at nothing to approach and to 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 confront Iran, um, which, of course, you know, is is taking us down a path to war. And so he sees the Saudi campaign in Yemen as a counterbalance to Iran's ambitions in Yemen. Yes, he wrongly sees that. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think what is bearing out is the world's largest humanitarian crisis. 14 million people uh, are on the brink of famine. That's half of the country. Wow. Um, you know, there was a an article yesterday that said that 20, you know, 50 children will go into the hospital for now, malnourishment um, 20 will be sent home and essentially will be sent home to die. Um, this is, you know, hundreds of people are dying every day. And this is actually a man-made crisis. So not only that people do don't have, really know about, it, I don't think, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that there's certainly a growing understanding of this atrocity, but, um, it, you know, it certainly needs to be much more talked about. Um, yeah. and what's in contention there? Why, why have we been in this crisis for four years? Yeah, so the Saudis intervened um, after a civil war in which the Houthi militia was able to take control of the capital, Sana'a. Um, and essentially they said, you know, this is, uh, you know, we don't want an unfriendly group of rulers on our border. We're going to go in and reinstall a, di- a dictator, a ruler that is more friendly to, to Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. our neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, w- you know, they border yeah. each other. Yes. Um, and so... And so, and so Saudi has been intervening ever since, but the the, ro- the war has been completely stalemated, um, despite the fact that there's a lot of killing. Uh, neither side is gaining ground, and this, the Yemeni people are suffering for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And where's the United States in this? What has been Trump's policy? What was Obama's policy? 
Yeah, so I mean, the the Obama's policy was to support the intervention. We provided uh, military assistance in the form of aerial refueling and also targeting selection um, and other types of intelligence. So, you know, we have personnel um, in Riyadh, U.S. personnel in Riyadh that's assisting with the, the you know, with the missions that are being conducted. And with the rationale being this is good for stability in the region or what 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 was the argument that Obama officials made? Yeah, I mean, the the argument is is a little bit dubious. Um, there's you know, the, you can go back to um, the uh, at, this was at the same time that the Obama administration was um, negotiating the Iran nuclear agreement. And mm. there was a belief that this a quick intervention um, that the United States could support its partner while at the same time focusing on getting the Iran deal over the finish line. And so um, and so, you know, we had, um, uh, you know, and, and but 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 despite that, the you know, now the war is now in its fourth year. And I, at the end of the Obama administration, there were attempts to curtail um, Saudi the, the the bombings. Um, there was an attempt to limit the arms sales to Saudi Arabia um, if it did not improve its strikes. So it was sort of indiscriminately bombing civilians, and now it you know it was the hope was that it would sell arms that were uh, that 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 we would be able to change their behavior through through limiting arms sales. That has not happened. And then when we had Trump, you know, there's sort of a further doubling down. Saudis acting with impunity. Um, they're doing so to uh, what they say is counter Iran. But, you know, that's that's a whole rabbit hole that we could go down. But I mean, I think that the the really important thing here is that um, that that millions of people's lives are at stake Um uh, Erica Fine, she's the advocacy director for Win Without War. Now, President Trump uh, left yesterday to go to Mar-a-Lago for the next six days where he's going to be celebrating the Thanksgiving holiday uh, and talked about uh, Saudi Arabia and claims um, that have bubbled up in, in press stories and charges he himself uh, or not charges, but uh, statements he himself has made about having close business relationships uh, a close business relationship with Saudi Arabia. And the question being, to what degree are those business relationships driving his decision making in this conflict? Now, here he is uh, in front of the White House on his way to uh, uh, to Mar-a-Lago, claiming that he has no personal connection uh, to Saudi Arabia, uh, that he is not at all uh, uh, not at all tied to to that government. Um, all right, I'm not not sure if we if we if we have that clip, but he reiterated the fact uh, that he has no personal connection to Saudi Arabia, no financial ties to Saudi Arabia, and here it is now. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. They did not make that assessment. Well, there uh, th that he's talking about the uh, CIA assessment that found the crown prince may have been involved in directing the killing, knew about the killing. Um, 
but the question still remains. Since you have the CIA finding that there, there's at least maybe a knowledge uh, of, of this killing from the crown prince, and this president claiming time and time again, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, we don't know, the CIA hasn't run this report, uh, saying on Sunday that he's not even going to hear the tape of the killing, because why would he hear the tape? He'll just ignore that evidence. Um, so the question is, to what degree are his personal financial dealings with Saudi Arabia, which he bragged about in 2015 and 2016, saying things like, I make a lot of money from them, they buy all sorts of my stuff, they pay me millions and hundreds of millions of dollars talking about Saudi Arabia. Do you have a sense how that's guiding his policy in this region? Well, I... I... Yes and no. I mean, I think that as an observer of the president, we know that what he is guided by is what is good for Donald Trump, right? It's, it's that not, we do and, now. Yeah. Yes. And and so what I think that the Democratic Congress, uh, the Democratic House is going to need to look into is to what extent um, is is he being driven by his personal financial interests? Um and certainly that's a that's true across the board It's true when it comes to Russia. Um, we need to see his tax returns to know, you know, what how much he's being invested in by these different countries. Um, I think that. But there is this weird sense of loyalty that he has. Right. Loyalty either because he just believes in people having his back or loyalty because he's trying to hide something. But. The fact that he has such close relationship with the Saudis, the fact that the Saudis helped him during times where he wasn't as financially uh, afloat as he would have liked to be in the 90s and then most recently booked all these rooms in his hotel to help the revenue um, of, of the Trump business, it, it at least appears that there's the sense of I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine and you know, even if uh, certainly in this case it contradicts stated American values, well, then so be it. Yes, I mean, I think that there's an a, there's a personal alignment, right? But then there's also an alignment with his with the right wing foreign policy establishment. There's alignment with the with you know the massive amount of money that is spent by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates every single year for on policies that they want. Um, you know, there's a it's a huge industry, the Saudi lobby. Um, and not to mention, you know, you've got big donors like mega, you know, million billionaire uh, Sheldon Adelson, who his entire approach to the region is align with Saudi Arabia, align with Israel to confront uh, the boogeyman Iran. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I, I so this in many think ways is could could be seen as something having John Bolton's fingerprints all over it, a representative of this extreme right foreign policy. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, we 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 don't know. I, I mean, I think it's a very important question what's driving it and what's motivating it. But I also think an important question is, how, what are we going to do about it? So one is we're going to have to investigate. But the other, um, which if you don't mind, I will mention that it, uh, next week, um, Senator Bernie Sanders is recalling a resolution, bringing a resolution to the floor that actually has a chance to pass. And that resolution would cut off 
uh, U.S. military assistance to Saudi uh, to the Saudi-led coalition in its war in Yemen. Um, it it was actually on the floor in March. Um, it was tabled, and so it has the ability to be called up again. But it was tabled by seven votes. Uh, I mean, it, it lost by seven votes, and so we have a you know now with the Khashoggi murder, um, which demonstrates that the United States is not going to hold Saudi Arabia accountable for whatever reason, personal, um, political, and, and, you know, what they believe is regional. Um, we actually have, the, the Congress has a chance to take back its war powers. Um, and, and, I mean, that's, that's uh, that would be an amazing development. Where are Republican senators on this? I read before you, you came in uh, some criticism from... Senator-elect Mitt Romney, uh, Rand Paul, and others about the statement the president issued yesterday and calling on him to once again lead with American values, to not let this kind of brutal murder slide. But would they support something like this? It would force them to directly contradict the president of their own party, who they've been hesitant uh, really to, to act against. They may issue statements criticizing him, but they haven't really acted. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so we've got, you know, the, the the resolution that failed in March did have Republican support. Um, it did not have, rep- have support from, you know, the corkers and the flakes of the world, but um, Senator Collins supported it, everyone's uh, favorite Republican hero. Um, <laughs> and um, as, you know, so it, it had it had a, a quite a it had a few uh, Republicans supported it. The thing that we've seen though um, is, on, especially from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is that there is bipartisan interest to take some sort of action. Now I am very optimistic about the War Powers Resolution passing. Um, I also think that there are other measures that um, both Republican and Democratic senators want to take, including sanctioning um, Mohammed bin Salman, potentially. Um, We saw yesterday, you know, outgoing um, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, sort of the gloves are off, I guess, Senator Corker, um, issue another statement with ranking member Menendez saying, we are once again invoking a law called the Magnitsky Act to demand an investigation of Mohammed bin Salman, um, which they had not previously done mm-hmm. uh, right after the Khashoggi killing. They just, you know, it was it was it was less specific to bin Salman. Um, and you know, if if you if there is if it is found that he is culpable or that he knew about this, that he ordered, he must be sanctioned. Um, you know, I, I cannot, I mean, Lindsey Graham, right, he went on uh, the morning show right after the Khashoggi murder and was incredibly apoplectic about this. Then he sort of walked things back. Um, See, this is almost a time where you miss John McCain, <laughs> right? Where was John McCain on this issue? I feel like he could have put together a coalition of Republicans Mm -hmm. to provide voice on this and to really uh, oppose the president in a real serious way. I mean, he, to me, seems like the only Republican who had the stature to really do something like that. Yeah, 
it's possible. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think you're right that there was he 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 was of the mentality by the time, um, you know, for over the last two years that he was going to oppose the president no matter what, because there was nothing there was nothing left to lose. Yeah. That being said, I am skeptical that the policy changes, the laws would be different. Now, I will say um, there's a bill that was introduced in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It had uh, Senator Young from Indiana, um, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, um, Senator Collins from Maine, as well as Bob Menendez, um, Gene Shaheen, and um, one other Democrat whose name I'm forgetting at the moment. Oh, I, yeah, I won't say it because I'm not. I don't remember. Um, they have introduced a sweeping bill um, to both end the war in Yemen and to well, and American support for the war and, in Yemen, and right? American support yeah. for the war in Yemen and to sanction Saudi Arabia. Um, it doesn't go as far as I would like, but it. There are certainly ways that you can amend it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I think that that coalition is actually forming. But I think one of... Oh, it's sorry, Senator Jack Reed. Um, Jack Reed. How can I, we forget Jack Reed? <laughs> is he your senator? Nobody knows about. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the important thing here is that this wouldn't be happening without the pressure that Senator Sanders, Chris Murphy, and Mike Lee have put on... Uh, yeah. Erica Fine, she's the advocacy director for Win Without War on Twitter at E-N Fine, F-E-I-N. Follow her there. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm Igor Wolski. Quick break. We're back right after this. Thanks for having me. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show. Or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. And on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. The Bill Press Show, given everything you need to fight with your family members this Thanksgiving dinner. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press on this Thanksgiving Eve. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And, you know, we're just going to dive right in and we're going to ask people what they're thankful for this year, what they're thankful for this holiday season. There's so much crazy negative news happening. It's important to find one thing, one thing, maybe two, uh, that you can be thankful for, that you can build on uh, in the year ahead. And joining us now in studio is Leah Askarinam. Askarinam. Thank you so so much. You're there. You got it. I'm so sorry I let you down. (laughs) Uh, She's covering the House, the Senate, gubernatorial elections for inside elections. uh, And she's on Twitter 
uh, Leah Ascarina. Uh, there you go. Yeah. On Twitter, give her. <laughs> oh, a, Igor, you can do this. I, I know you it's can. Too hard for me. I have a no, mind block. No, so, My it's mind so many stops. letters. It's okay. See, I will have you know that when I when I was uh, in middle school, I really really got into reading, and so like I read a lot, read a lot, read a lot. But my brain would do this thing that when I would come across a name in these pages that I didn't know how to pronounce, I would literally just yep. skip over it. You just it. go over it? I would literally yep. just go over it. So this is a long time. I can't get my brain You're to. You're not the only see, one. See, I see this, and my brain literally <laughs> doesn't even try. It no. doesn't even try. It just goes right over You're it. You're not the only one. My teachers growing up would, like, when they were calling roll, they'd be like, Leah, I you know, I just can't do this, okay? <laughs> and, like, get really mad Stomp at me. Stomp out. It's like, you can just call me Leah. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Please like me. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I, I've, I've said this before, but as someone who's named Igor Volsky, I mm. really should know better. But there, we've told this story so many times on the show, but it's really a classic. Uh, this was maybe several years ago. We had uh, Gabe DiBenedetti on, mm -hmm. who is now at CNN, I think, maybe? Was he a political? He was at political when we had him. That's I think that. he's either Daily Beast or CNN. And his... His name, I saw it on the page. He was sitting in front of me, and the thing that came out of my mouth, I couldn't even some recognize. D's, some B's, some D's, some D's. And I yeah. did it four different times to the point where after the show, I had to send him an email just like deeply apologizing for he, screwing I'm up his sure last name. I'm sure he forgave you. I've, but yeah, I, but I wouldn't good, be offended. Well, uh, thank you. But the good point, the good, the good thing is that I now have internalized it. I know it's Gabe DiBenedetti. And when other people around me mispronounce it, I jump right in. Oh, I'm yeah, like, it's gotta, actually DiBenedetti. It's actually, here's it's, how you say yeah, it. Yeah, actually, let me tell you how you say it. Oh, yeah. Now you so got to jump in. Exactly. You got to jump in. It's the only complicated name that I know how to pronounce. Okay. We've stalled enough. I've given you enough time. <laughs> what is something you are thankful for? You cannot say the midterm elections. Oh, I'm not thankful. I'm thankful they're over. Um, I am thankful for, gosh, it's so early. I was prepared for Mississippi. I was prepared for women in politics. I don't know. Um, okay. Are I, you thankful for the apology in Mississippi? We'll get to that in a moment. Maybe you're not. <laughs> I, uh, I got a new cat this Ooh. year. A new cat. Her name is Izzy. I mean, it's, it's a cat. I do uh -huh. have two cats, oh, okay. technically. That's oh, a long story. Okay. My parents may have adopted one from me at an earlier stage in my life. Uh, but I got a new cat this year, a rescue from like moving the on up, got a new cat, got rid of the old one, got a new cat. A little yeah. street cat named Izzy. I'm sorry, in D.C. they're called community cats. Oh, community cats. Um, and so this cat great. just found you? It came to you? No. She uh, struggled in the uh, street cat world. I see. And it's so rough the there. SPCA brought her in and we got her at the shelter oh wonderful. so she's great she recently Aww. caught a rodent at our house and so oh. we're really thankful for her wait? <laughs> <laughs> well there you go you yeah. know i um i had a cat for many years um and uh what i struggle now i have a dog which is great. so much I know. better i know uh but what, what i struggle with cats is just the cleaning of the, the litter box. of the litter box yeah. I, it was always i would much rather clean up after my dog and take outside. my dog for walks outside yep. than deal with that so that's the dream one day for one day. Izzy to have a dog one day. sibling all right uh we're going to be back in a second with with more you're listening to the bill press show
Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Bill Press Show on this Wednesday, November 21st, 2018. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press as we ask, what are you thankful for this holiday season at Igor Volsky at BP Show? Let us know. Our, our guest, Leah Escarinam, is excited about the cat that she recently got, a stray community cat who ate a rodent in her house. Caught. <laughs> caught. caught oh, caught a rodent. She just, did, she just wanted to show us that uh, she could do it. That is, oh. yeah. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Did you place the rodent outside? I was luckily not home when this happened. Uh, my boyfriend said that he was able to dispose of oh, the rodent. Goodness. I didn't ask too many follow-up questions. See, if there was a rodent in my house, I would just move. I would just I, move. Yeah, I just would move. leave. How I would do you just move. live in D.C.? Uh, it's I've moved a lot. <laughs> I have really moved a lot. So um, you've posed the question many times. What are you politically thankful for this holiday season? And we are getting lots and lots of comments at BP show. We have a really nice powwow going on between two Marylanders in the comment section. But it all started when Helen said, I am thankful that people like Representative Raskin and Chris Van Hollen were reelected and will continue to hold this sham president and his circus accountable. They are unsung heroes of the resistance and Dems. And then Born a, I cannot read their full Twitter handle, said, I'm a Mar Marylander too. We're lucky to have strong Democrats <laughs> representing us in Congress. I'm thankful. Van Hollen really is unsung. I felt like he took a real step down in like media presence after he went into the Senate, which surprised me. There's kind of the safe Democrat. I mean, I'm, I'm also... From Maryland. Oh. Um, but I feel like we've been a pretty politically under the radar state. You have been. We've been have a pretty reliably Democratic representation in the Senate. Yes. With a Republican governor who was just reelected. Um, but he's but like a fairly been, moderate Republican, right? Or I no? mean, he's, I think it depends on who Larry you Hogan, ask. right? Larry Hogan. Larry Hogan. He's perceived to be a, a relatively moderate uh, Republican, which is why he was just reelected in Maryland. I see. So, yeah. I see. Well, yesterday uh, you had the last debate, I think, of the 2018 oh, midterm election. Fingers goodness. crossed. I know. Crossing it's all over. fingers between Cindy Hyde Smith, the Republican uh, appointed uh, Mississippi senator, and Mike Espy. Now, mm -hmm. several days ago now, uh, uh, recording surfaced mm -hmm. of Cindy Hyde Smith joking about mm -hmm. sitting in a front row of a public lynching, mm -hmm. of suppressing liberal voters, making it harder for liberals to vote. All this was happening as the two are locked in a runoff election uh, that's going to take place November 26th, 7th, November 27th. The Tuesday after Thanksgiving, Tuesday, whenever that is. Yep. The Tuesday after Thanksgiving. Now, Republicans thought that this uh, runoff was just a formality, uh, that in a deep red state like Mississippi that hadn't elected a Democrat since 1982, that it would really be a cakewalk. And Mike Espy, a former congressperson uh, and uh, Clinton cabinet secretary, ran a strong campaign but was never thought to be uh, a real challenger to Cindy Hyde-Smith. Well, all of that appears to have changed uh, with comments she made and the controversy around them. Initially, Cindy Hyde-Smith refused to apologize uh, for those remarks, but she appeared to do that yesterday uh, in the debate between the two, um, asked about the comments. Cindy Hyde-Smith 
uh, apologized, but also claimed that her political opponents used it uh, against her. Uh, let's see if if we have uh, if we have that audio. All right, I don't know if we do, but she basically said um, that you know the comments were twisted against her, that they were used uh, by Democrats. Here she is at yesterday's. This debate. comment was twisted and it was turned into a weapon to be used against me, a political weapon used for nothing but personal and political gain by my opponent. That's the type of politics Mississippians are sick and tired of. By the way, Republicans uh, had been hoping she would apologize. National Republicans, uh, who uh, became a bit anxious about this race, were calling on her to apologize, asking for her to apologize. She did calls with, with donors in which they asked her, why don't you apologize? Uh, and she didn't have a very good answer to that. And so yesterday she appeared to at least move in that direction. And Mike Espy, uh, who's the Democrat challenging Cindy Hyde-Smith, uh, responded yesterday at their debate to her so I don't know what's in your heart, but we all know what came out of your mouth. And it went viral you know, within the first three minutes around the world. And so it's caused our state harm. It's given our state another black eye that we don't need. So what is happening here in Mississippi? Why not just apologize if it was a joke? I mean, I, I, I have a hard time believing that she was serious about going to a public lynching. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I too don't know what's in her right. heart. But what's happening? So let's rewind a little bit. Let's get some some context let's here do because it. I don't know how much these comments have changed the dynamic of the race. So the general election was the primary for this race because it was a special election to replace a retiring Republican senator. So in Mississippi, that means that everybody appears on the general election ballot, regardless of party. So there are multiple Republicans. There were four. Of there were four them. people on yes. the ballot. Um, there was one Democrat. And then that was that was Mike Espy, um, Cindy Hyde-Smith, who had been appointed um, by the governor to fill the vacancy. And then there was Chris McDaniel. So Chris McDaniel is uh, in the state legislature and has run from the right before. So he actually almost won a primary in 2014 to win the Senate seat, ended up winning. Uh, he ended up actually going to a runoff with that Cochran and having to kind of I mean, he it was he was a real race. And and Cochran, we should note, was uh, a politician who had deep roots in that state and was able to form a broad coalition. Is that correct? To carry him over the finish line in 2014. Broad ish. I mean, he's not ish. quite <laughs> as he's not quite as um, strong as an incumbent as Wicker, who won reelection pretty easily um, last week. The so, most anonymous senator in the Senate is <laughs> well, Wicker. Not, yes. not this week. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it was already going. So the general election happens. If nobody gets over 50 percent, it means it goes to a runoff. What ended up happening is Cindy Hyde-Smith got about 42 percent. Mike Espy got 41 percent. And Chris McDaniel got, I think, 16 or 17 percent. So Hyde-Smith was never running away with this race. And there was always a question of whether McDaniel voters, who are kind of like, you know, the far right voters of Mississippi, they've been there for a while, they followed McDaniel for a little while, if they were going to show up the week after, like, a general election, the week mm -hmm. after Thanksgiving, yeah. two weeks after a general election, and support somebody 
who like they haven't really been a huge fan of. And what? Let me ask you this. Now, my understanding is that Hyde Smith had aligned herself with Trump. Mm-hmm. And where was the, the the sunlight between her and McDaniel's? So McDaniel's always been running a little bit further to the right, kind of as an anti-establishment figure. Um, one of the main criticisms of Cindy Hyde Smith is that she had uh, been in the state legislature as a Democrat for most of her time there. And she actually switched to the Republican Party before she ran for statewide office, uh, state agriculture commissioner in 2011. So there was the whole, you know, she's a politician attack and she's not she's. She's not here for you. And McDaniel is kind of the we see these in like a lot of Republican primaries that super, you know, kind of right wing. I'm anti-establishment. I'm not a politician, even though you're in the state legislature, which Mm -hmm. we see over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so we don't know kind of what they're going to do. We don't think they're going to go to the polls and vote for Mike Gatsby. But do they come out? Do a few of them go and vote for Mike Gatsby? And that's kind of where. I think some of the window, the narrow window for Democrats um, opens up. And presumably Democrats really have to increase turnout uh, in this special election amongst African-Americans, get some some more white voters in order to build a coalition that can push SB over the line. Right. So Mississippi is actually looking at some numbers from the Kaiser Family Foundation for an article I just wrote. And Mississippi has the highest uh, share of Uh, black people in its population of any state. Um, The only um, other than Washington, D.C., which isn't a state. Um, So sadly, (laughs) um, we know that black voters um, made a huge difference in Alabama. And therefore, I mean, Mississippi, I mean, SB only really needs 20 percent, 20 to 30 percent of white voters to come out and vote for him, which seems like a, you know, a relatively, you know, like he he could possibly do that, but it's Mississippi. Like we're still dealing with a very conservative state. It's not one of those states that we're seeing kind of demographically change. It's not like a Georgia or even like a North Carolina. It's Mississippi. Now, Espy would be the first African-American senator since Reconstruction mm-hmm. to come out of Mississippi. Cindy Hyde-Smith would be the first woman senator elected mm-hmm. uh, to a seat in Mississippi. And so tell us now... The context for the comments that she made that has reverberated across the state, reverberated across the nation and led to this latest controversy. So Mississippi obviously has a really sad, awful history when it comes to uh, civil rights and when it comes to lynching. I mean, it's um, you can't bring up a public hanging in Mississippi and not think about the years of Jim Crow and segregation and and just violence um, against African-Americans there. Um, And so um, Mike Espy is, you know, saying, why are you bringing us back to kind of a time where Mississippi was was there was so much shame in this state, which is really similar to kind of the the argument that Doug Jones used in Alabama. He was like, you know, we're tired of being the embarrassment of the country. And Roy Moore, the Republican who did not win, um, he argued, was bringing back the idea that Alabama was somehow backwards. Um, so we're kind of seeing that same argument starting to surface. Um, what was the context of her remarks, though? In what context did she, she make was, the quote-unquote oh, joke? She, well, so she was, um, I think she was talking to like a, a cattle rancher or some guy who was endorsing her, saying nice things about her, and she turned to him and said, you know, I would like you a lot, whatever, like if you invited me to... A public hanging, I'd be on the front row. So she 
it was as the way she put it i think was it was an exaggerated expression of regard oh an exaggerated expression of regard okay so this so i i you know i'd listen to the isolated sound and maybe we can we can play it's a little hard to hear you mm. there's like a siren in the background but if you listen closely you can hear her make those comments If you invited me to a public hanging, I'll be in the front row. Mm-hmm. It, so this, on the front on row. On the front row. Yeah. Uh, so she volunteered this. So I, I imagine, because I hadn't heard the context before, I imagine that there was some, I mean, I don't know how you get into a conversation about public lynchings, but I thought it, I, I guess I'm surprised to hear that she injected this into that back and forth that they that had. That was my impression. I didn't watch the entire conversation. I don't know if that's available yeah. and now I kind of want to go watch it. Yeah. But I haven't seen that. But that's just like a strange up. way yeah. to regard somebody yeah. as I like you so much. If right. you invited me to a Right, lynching, it's not what people generally would, say yeah, when they're I would, trying to express affection. That's a bizarre and is that maybe that's I mean, I don't know. I've never been to Mississippi. Maybe this is like a weird Mississippi I've, thing. I don't know. It's no, so I think gross. It's just a dog. It's, okay, she said you say no. No, you say and no. I've I've been to Mississippi actually oh, Several times you heard in my this life, before. and I have not heard that expression. <laughs> I spent many years in the South and the Delta, and I've never, okay, never heard that. And so she spent a long time. She basically disappeared off the campaign trail after these remarks, mm-hmm. hunkered down, did not apologize. My understanding is that she claimed to her supporters that if she were to issue an apology, it would just fuel the issue even more. Mm-hmm. Um, Clearly, that calculation changed a bit last night, although she tried to use it against Espy um, and the Democrats in, in that state. Uh, but it did the apology, in your sense, did the apology come out because there's there's this fear that maybe she would lose this uh, special election, this runoff, that maybe the very same arguments that you say Doug Jones made in Alabama and mm-hmm. won, that Espy could successfully deploy them here because he has not made a big issue of this, that he'd right. let the surrogates, the national surrogates, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and mm-hmm. um, who else was there, Landrew, mm-hmm. Mitch Landrew and others who were in the state take that on. He really focused on health care and the economy and kind of the pocketbook issues. Right. So, I mean, the way I generally think about this kind of thing, like when an incumbent or when the favored candidate makes a mistake, it, it opens up a, a window. And there's no reason necessarily to like, Everybody knows that Hyde Smith said this. So it opens up a window for Aspie to start talking about things that he wants to talk about so that people will start, you know, anybody who has maybe a little bit of reservations about voting for Cindy Hyde Smith now is maybe open to Aspie. And if Aspie's talking about health care and pre-existing conditions, that might help them kind of get over the fact that he's a Democrat. I still think that's pretty unlikely. We're not looking at Alabama right now. We're not, this is not Roy Moore. We're not seeing um, Republicans distance themselves from Hyde Smith the same way they did with Roy Moore. There has been some distance. There has been some criticism. But like, if you remember with Roy Moore, there was, was a like, huge national story for months and months and months. Exactly. And the state was really seen as a national embarrassment. I mean, we all know all of the other problems that he had outside yeah. of the the racial piece was huge, but also all the charges. That was, I mean, the racial... According to lots of people who I talked to, including Republicans, I mean, Roy Moore 
could have survived the racial issues. He could have survived being twice deposed from the Supreme Court. The issue was when he was accused of sexual assault against a teenager. Yeah. That is when it went too far. And yeah. the fact that it was a teenager yeah. made it too far. Yeah. Um, what that's not what Cindy Hyde Smith is accused yes. of. So I think it's a it's a it's responded to differently. I mean, national press might respond to it similarly. People in D.C. might respond to it similarly. But I think voters respond to it very differently. And there ha- you mentioned there hasn't been the kind of defection from state Republicans in Mississippi. Uh, and the governor who appointed her stood by her as well. Mm-hmm. And after her press con or after her debate last night, the other senator, Roger Wicker, came out and basically sur- uh, was a surrogate for her after her um, debate and took questions from the press. So it's not just that state Republicans aren't distancing themselves, that national Republicans aren't doing that either, not the same way that they did with Roy Moore. And Trump, of course, is flying out, holding two rallies mm-hmm. in Mississippi on her behalf. I mean, it's like, make insensitive racial comments. Trump is there for you. Right. And I mean, I still think that I know there have been a lot of stories about how, you know, Republicans are concerned or nervous. I don't think Republicans have ever thought that uh, Hyde Smith was going to run away with this race. It might be narrow. It might be within the single digits. But that doesn't mean that SB can get over 50 percent in this race. It just means it's a little bit closer than maybe it should be. And what's your sense about how this is playing in the African-American community in Mississippi? You mentioned there's a very, uh, a very high number of African-Americans in Mississippi. Uh, are they more motivated to go out and support SB in the aftermath of this? So that's kind of the question is who shows up to vote. And so we don't know if people who are offended by Hyde Smith's comments are going to be more excited to vote or if people who just attended a Trump rally because they're going to be two in Mississippi on the same day, if they're going to be excited to vote, if it's going to become a nationalized election and therefore anti-Pelosi, anti-Schumer people will be encouraged to vote. And we don't have much polling to go off of. Um, we had so, so it's kind of all theoretical at this point and anecdotal. We don't know for sure who's going to show up, which is why we just moved the race out of solid Republican to likely Republican. Not because I think that, you know, Hyde Smith is actually definitely going to win this thing, but because there's so much uncertainty because we don't know who's going to show up. Well, that special election is on Tuesday, November 27th. Seven? 7th. Tuesday. 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 It's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. I've screwed it up three times. The Tuesday <laughs> after Thanksgiving, the special election in Mississippi between Cindy Hyde-Smith and Mike Espy. In the time we have left, I uh, will ask you annoying questions that I'm sure people sitting around a Thanksgiving table are gonna wa- are also going to talk about. Uh, and that is, I cringe, but I'm going to do this because it's what the people want. Oh, gosh. Uh, and that is the 2020 presidential oh, election. yeah. Uh, and how that field is shaping up. Uh, my sense is you're going to have 30,000 Democrats uh, running for the nomination. But who do you see positioning themselves for that run as we sit here on Thanksgiving So. Eve? Lots of people, and I'm going to get on my soapbox for one second here because yes. this is like my message that I'm trying Ooh. to get people to understand, Give it to us. is that as much as we're talking about all of the women and women of color and people of color who are going to be running for Democrats, uh, going to be running as Democrats for the presidency, um, I think right now we're seeing that it's a lot of white men, some who have lost, elect- so far, Richard Ojeda, who lost a congressional race, and Beto O'Rourke. 
are like two of the most discussed people we're talking about. But has for the Beto Democratic made candidate. any moves? I mean, it's one thing to be discussed a week after. I mean, after. a medium post. I I don't know. I don't have any inside knowledge okay. on that, so I can probably read into it as much as anybody else. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised. I would just, as much as we're talking about the year of the woman, which again, I don't think we should call it the year of the woman, but as much as we're talking about how you know we're kind of bringing in uh, politicians who represent the people more in terms of gender and diversity and ethnicity and race, um, I still think we're seeing a lot of white men well, position themselves. Well, but still you, you have uh, Gillibrand, mm-hmm. who's clearly interested in, in the race. You have Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. who's clearly interested. Uh, Cory Booker. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other Democrats who may not be immediately, uh, you know, kind of publicly pronouncing that they're going to run. Oh, but they absolutely. are, I think, making moves behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but if you compare that to the list of white men, I literally tweeted out a, a list of 20 white men Wait, yesterday. So, are, so give me some are, names. Give me some of these names. Okay. So we, um, so we, we have did, Jay uh, Inslee. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, we have Steve Bullock. Steve Bullock, Montana, uh, yes. Yep. Uh, Richard Ojeda, West Virginia, just lost a race there. That's right. West Beto O'Rourke. Beto. Um, now, Mark Warner, I don't think, is running Warner. anymore. Ooh. I don't think. I that think would be a that. solid Joe, no from me. Joe <laughs> Biden. Joe Biden. Bernie yes. Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Uh, let's see. Okay, that is, this is a lot of white men. Okay, I know. So it's going to be a lot because we did a special podcast that will air tomorrow, and we didn't count separately white men, but we counted 30 people who are like in the arena, and I would say two-thirds of those are white men. Wow. Yeah, so, I, yeah. I'm pulling up a list now. Well, thankfully, but... uh, oh, God, uh, what's his name? It's escaping my head. Uh, Avenatti. 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 I don't think I included him He's on that list. We don't, we <laughs> don't know that. Anymore. Don't, He's on no list anymore. We don't know that, do we? I mean... I don't, I mean, I like in what world? I don't know. That would, I don't know if I mean, it was always kind of like gross and disgusting, but I think in light of uh, the allegations that he beat his ex-wife, or I don't know if they're separated, uh, his um, estranged wife, uh, it seems very right. difficult. Somebody who's abused their significant other would never I know, run I know, I know, right. What am I, yeah, what am I saying? What am I saying? Win. You're right, you're right. <laughs> what am I saying? Yeah, it would never win. John exactly. Hickenlooper, Martin Hickenlooper, O'Malley, Jeff Merkley, Eric O'Malley. O'Malley. Who is talking about O'Malley? Tim Ryan, Mitch Landrew. O'Malley is talking about O'Malley. Yeah, O'Malley's really talking Terry about O'Malley. Terry McAuliffe. Terry, Bob Casey yes. Jr. Gavin Newsom. Bob Casey? From the Howard Pennsylvania Schultz, Senator? the Starbucks guy. Oh, yeah. There's a whole bunch of... Wait, wait. Who? Bob okay, Steyer. who? Okay, look. Bob Casey seems like a very nice man. He really does. But I don't understand who's talking about Bob Casey. I remember... Uh, it was maybe now 10 years ago. Yeah, it was literally 10 years ago. I'm sitting at, at CAP where I used to work. And Bob Casey was there for some event. And he walks by where uh, at the time I worked at Think Progress. And he work, walks by the pod of Think Progress writers. And literally nobody even turns around. Like he just is such a regular looking, like like just, just a normal guy. Just a normal guy. Don't you Literally vote for nobody. That for and I is it everyone saying they just <laughs> want to vote for a normal guy for president? That's how. That's how but Bob Casey, Trump. I'd never heard that name before. Bob Casey is he still pro life? Bob Casey? I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, we'll we'll do a closer examination <laughs> of his record. Um, but. What about Mike Bloomberg? Why isn't Mike Bloomberg on your list? He probably 
probably was. But I don't know if he'll run as a Democrat necessarily. I don't know how. Well, he, would he just run. changed his party affiliation, I think, to Democrat from Independent. But Bernie Sanders just changed it to Independent, and he'd probably run as a Democrat. Yeah, this I is mean, true. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. Okay, so here you are sitting. We have little time left, but you're sitting at your Thanksgiving table having turkey. Everyone knows you work in politics. This is your thing. And, you know, the, you get that inevitable question. So who do you think is going to be the Democratic nominee? What do you say to that? What? How do you? How will you answer that question at Thanksgiving? Let's just practice it here. Let's role play uh, it here. <laughs> I would say if you asked me this time two years ago, there's no way I would have said that Trump was going three years ago. Whenever the last primary was, I wouldn't have called Trump. And therefore, I will not call <laughs> who is going to be a Democratic candidate. I don't know. There are going to be so many. Like, for all we know, like, these first initial primary uh, caucuses and like they could be determined by a few percentage points and I can't. All right. Well, I that's, you know, that. that's the right answer. But when people ask me, I just look away. Oh, that's good. That's what I do. Show them picture of Izzy the cat. Exactly. Exactly. You send me the cat. I'll send that. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Leah Eskarinum. Perfect. Eskarinum. She's covering the House Senate gubernatorial elections for Inside Elections. She's on Twitter at Leah Askaridum, follow her there. I'm Igor Volsky. We'll be back in just a moment with Chelsea Parsons. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe, and weigh in. I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press on this Wednesday, November 21st, Thanksgiving Eve. Thanksgiving Eve. Here on The Bill Press Show, at Igor Volsky, at BP Show. We want to hear from you, because the question of the day that I've been posing to everyone is, what are you thankful this holiday season? What are you thankful as you sit down at that dinner table, cut up that turkey with your family members? What are the positive things that you're going to talk about? Uh, joining us now is Chelsea Parsons. She is the VP of Gun Violence Prevention at the Center for American Progress uh, on Twitter at Chelsea C. Parsons. Chelsea C. Parsons, a great account to follow, Thank actually. You. Uh, if you want smart analysis uh, about guns and so much more. Chelsea, uh, you're not going to walk away from this table without me asking you, what are you thankful for <gasps> this holiday season? You cannot say the midterm elections. You cannot say the year of the woman. You have to find something that will give our listeners uh, you know, a different kind of answer when they're asked about it. If you look at the political uh, atmosphere out there, you look at what's happening, where things are going, there has to be one or two things that you can point to. I got you. And also, I don't appreciate not getting a heads up that you were asking <laughs> me this so that I would have had time to think about it. Um, staying kind of on brand. Oh, um, always. I am thankful for uh, the fact that the NRA is on the run. Yes, I am oh, thankful for um, that. The fact that we finally seem to be kind of shaking up the traditional dynamics of this issue uh, with respect to kind of how the NRA has been running the table. And so I think that is related to the midterm elections, <laughs> um, but is a little more of a specific subpoint. See, Chelsea and I really have the same brand because that's how I opened the show. That's <laughs> that what right? I said I was thankful for, okay, but that's okay. Right, I'll give you right, I'll, right. Clearly, you weren't listening. So. <laughs> I'll give you a pass. We had um, Kylie Joy Gray on guest hosting a few days ago, and we talked about a fun story that Cher Blue, where she works, was covering, that the NRA is now cutting 
coffee, just yeah. like That's pots right. of coffee for their office. So yeah. it is a good time and it's something to be thankful for. Well, let's start there. Uh, and that is this sense that we have. And, you know, the NRA is a big organization and it's kind of like a big black hole. So it's hard to know exactly what's going on. But you combine the coffee anecdote of no more coffee for employees at the headquarters in Fairfax. You combine that with decline in political spending, This these midterm elections, uh, the unseating of at least, I think, like 44 NRA-endorsed members of Congress. And you th I think you have this sense of, is the lobby, which was for many years seen as a one of the most powerful and successful political operations in American history. Is it losing its power? Is it losing its clout? And let me add one more piece of proof to this, and that is in the two years that Trump has been president, however long it's been, two years? Has it been two years? Maybe? Almost? almost. I don't know. Two very long years. The NRA has failed to advance that's any right. kind of agenda. So what's going on with the lobby? Yeah, and don't also, don't forget also the... Um the the fact that the you have increasingly the business community and private sector breaking long-standing ties with the NRA. over 40 companies that's right um and you have increasingly um kind of other groups of stakeholders who normally would kind of stay out of a debate with the NRA who kind of try to stay out of the you know, quote unquote, political part of this issue, as if that's possible, um, finally deciding they can't do that anymore. And I think the most recent example of that is, uh, you know, were the doctors um, who really came out strongly after um, the social media. Um, I, I, by the way, I don't know if we've talked about this yet. I am convinced that the NRA has a new social media director who thinks that they're really clever. Um, <laughs> but there's been a marked turn in kind of the nature of their social, which is kind of so a whole different topic. You are referring to a tweet from the NRA main account right. that uh, came, was it a week ago, maybe two weeks yeah. ago now, that criticized doctors as self-important calling on them to stop talking about the gun issue and to, quote unquote, stay in your lane. Right. In response to that tweet, you saw a wave of doctors, physicians, uh, folks in the medical field who take care of gunshot victims respond in an uproar. Not only did they respond in an uproar, but they responded by sharing photos. Um, and I, one of the things that is is kind of unique and interesting about this issue is that when we talk about gun violence and we we talk about the problems and we advocate for solutions, we usually are doing it in a kind of a sanitized way, right? So we talk about people who are killed and we talk about people who survive injuries, but we don't see it. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that and you don't want to exploit um, people or you know sensationalize it. But at the same time, when you don't see what it looks like when uh, somebody is treated in the emergency room and kind of, you know, the the blood on the floor, right? Or there was one doctor who had I posted a, a photo of himself with a, I don't know, like a splash guard yeah, mask guard, that yeah. was covered in blood, right? That, I think, is what was so powerful about what the doctors were saying it, because they were not just saying, yes, this is my lane, this is what we do, I save people's lives, I, or I try, right? They, they showed what it looks like. Um, and... And frankly, I really think that we need more of that in this conversation because, you know, we do sometimes get stuck 
um, trying to persuade by the by the force of you know our our strong arguments. And, and, and there's a real imbalance there because the gun industry glamorizes the gun right. and frames the gun as this super masculine, really cool military instrument. And then you don't have that same kind right. of emotional connection on the other side. Well, let me ask you about kind of a, a policy question that's related to how doctors are talking about this issue and the authority that doctors have in talking about this issue. And that is the fact that over the course of the last 10 years, 20 years, you've had the firearm industry producing firearms that are more dangerous and more deadly than they were you know, decades ago. And so as a result, bullet wounds that you could be treated for and survive, doctors are increasingly seeing those becoming fatal. Right. And that's a piece of the story that we don't hear a lot about. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. And I've talked to some researchers and doctors about this. But, you know, when you look at the trend line in terms of uh, numbers of, of gun related deaths over time and, and particularly um, homicides, but it kind of it's true across all types. It's been largely stagnant. So you see little blips up occasionally, but it's largely stagnant. And that has happened over the last you know 15 years or so, even as um, medicine and emergency medicine has continued to advance. So you would you would expect to see um, a decline in deaths as more people are able to survive being shot as medicine improves, right? Yeah. But at the same time as you have those improvements in medicine that, that do allow doctors to save more people when they've been shot, you also have um, this kind of sick innovation by the gun industry to create firearms and ammunition that are more devastating to a human body, right? And so, and that's both a, a function of the kind of velocity with which rounds are fired, as well as the size of them, as well as the actual features of rounds of ammunition themselves, right? And so um, you have this dynamic where you would expect us to be saving more people because just by the pure advances in medicine, but medicine can't keep up with the way that the gun industry is is innovating to create and deadlier weapons. Why why is the gun industry doing this and why is the government doing nothing to stop them? So, well, I mean, the gun industry is doing it to make money. I mean, that's what an industry does. And so as you see and we know from survey research that uh, a, it's a declining number of um, households and individuals in this country are choosing to own guns. So you have a shrinking pool of gun owners. But at the same time, those people who are choosing to own guns are owning a lot more of them. So you have this concentration of gun ownership. Well, when you have somebody who already owns a bunch of guns, how are you going to entice them to buy a new one? You create a new type of product that is um, appealing in some way. So you you kind of pair that with a marketing of like, look at this, you know, kind of tough, macho, sexy, whatever new gun. Um, and, and so that's kind of how that's just how that's the business part, I think, of that industry. Um, you know, the question as to why is the government not doing anything about it is a good one. Yeah. Uh, which kind of gets into, you know, all of the really the political part of this debate and, and the fact that, you know, we've been basically um, at a little bit of a standstill uh, when it comes to um, trying to legislate to to reduce gun violence. Although I think the point that you raised at the top is a really important one um, that we need to keep reminding folks. But the last two years, um, you know, there was Republican control of the House and the Senate and the White House, and the NRA was unable to move any of its priority legislation. So that is a, is a huge win. And I think speaks to the declining power of that lobby and the declining 
um, support for that guns everywhere agenda, no regulation agenda? Uh, on Monday uh, in Chicago, there was another shooting. This one uh, at uh, Mercy Hospital, uh, which left uh, several people dead um, when an individual who, uh, as many do, had a history uh, of assault uh, uh, took, a, took a gun um, uh, was in a was in some kind of dispute and argument, and then that dispute escalated uh, because that individual had a gun. We have some audio here uh, from Dr. Michael Davenport uh, of Mercy Hospital talking about w w what that shooting looked like. Everyone's been affected, uh, and there's no time limit on how long our counselors will be available. They'll be available as long as our people need. And a witness to the shooting, this is again the shooting in Chicago, Mercy Hospital, describing that incident. I seen two people get shot. So at least two people get shot yes. in, inside, just on the entrance, inside the, the hospital. One was outside the entrance, one was on the inside. So you hear a lot about Chicago and, and gun violence in Chicago. And of course, the other side uses Chicago, which has strong gun laws to argue that those laws don't work. Uh, what's the response to that? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple things that, that the shooting um, at Mercy Hospital on Monday bring to light. Um, you know, the, the first is the fact that um, it was rooted in intimate partner violence. Um, and I can't overstate the frequency with which shootings, mass shootings, have a root in some kind of domestic violence. And so what we know um, is that the shooter in this case was the former fiance of the doc one of the, the doctor who was murdered. She was the target. Um, I actually don't think it was a dispute. I think mm -hmm. he went there to target her and stalk mm -hmm. her. Um, that is very common. You see that over and over again. Um, the cap the shooting at the Capitol Gazette newspaper a couple months ago, similarly, uh, you know, a man who had a history of stalking women. And so the, you know, as we try to figure out um, what we can do to, to, to deal with some of this gun violence in this country, um, we have to start with domestic violence and, and figuring out how to um, make sure that people with a history of domestic violence don't have access to firearms. And we know that the shooter here was a legal gun owner. He had, um, you know, Chicago requires you to have a, um, a firearm owner identification card. He, he had all of that and yet still had um, weapons and was able to commit this um, attack. So is, is it a matter of you can have strong laws, but people still slip through the cracks, you can't prevent all gun violence. I mean, why do we see this time and time again, even in places where you need an identification card? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, there's there's a lot of, um, it, it's complicated and there are a lot of different factors. So, you know, when we're talking about domestic violence, um, you know, we have somebody who has a history of it and yet he wasn't ever convicted. He wasn't subject to a restraining order. And so it's not enough to just have strong laws in place. You have to make sure that you have uh, a robust system of enforcement. You need to make sure that all uh, players in the criminal justice system are properly trained and, and know to take seriously um, what may seem like a relatively minor complaint about stalking or about abuse. Um, because if he had been convicted of, of a domestic violence related crime, if he had been subject to a restraining order, he wouldn't have been able to buy a gun. So I think there's that enforcement piece as well. I mean, the other thing is um, the, the way that the NRA and opponents of any kind of um, gun law reform use 
Chicago as an example, um, is extremely disingenuous. I mean, not only do they use it as, as an example to undermine why gun laws don't work, they use it as a kind of racial dog whistle um, to talk about how gun violence is inevitable in some communities. And and, that's and by so, that, they mean, they mean black, black communities. communities. I mean, yeah. so that let's be very clear that that's why Chicago is the buzzword. Um, you know, one of the as things, opposed to just like Wyoming, where they have high suicide rates. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, Chicago, uh, Illinois does have uh, a relatively strong system of gun laws. Um, However, those laws are undermined by the weaker laws in surrounding states like Indiana. Um, and, you know, again, you need to have a comprehensive system in place. You need to have strong laws federally um, so that it's not easy to evade them. And again, you need to have a comprehensive system of enforcement. And in places like Chicago and, and other um, areas where you have higher rates of, um, of violence, you also need to have programs in place that are addressing what the root causes of that violence, right? So, you know, it's not um, a gun is not causing violence, but access to a gun makes violence fatal. And so you need to do kind of focus on both pieces of it um, in order to really get at uh, bringing down some of these these. Well, rates. let me ask you about this comprehensive approach and adopting a real comprehensive nationwide approach, because Nancy Pelosi, uh, who's the leader of Democrats in the House, stated during the election and then after that comprehensive background checks mm -hmm. are going to be a priority for Democrats. Where does that effort stand today and, and what is that bill going to look like? Yeah. So um, uh, Leader Pelosi has has said she wants to um, prioritize moving a universal background checks bill early next year. Um, and I think that that's really important. I think that um, the fact that we have uh, a gap in our law right now that allows people um, to buy guns through private transactions, so from somebody who's not a gun dealer, um, without a background check, without any questions asked, without any paperwork kept, uh, is a huge vulnerability. And and so you you know we we have a system of laws in place where people with certain criminal histories, people who have been involuntarily committed for mental health treatment, domestic abusers, are not legally allowed to buy guns. Yet we have a completely wide open uh, door to evade that law by not by having these these sales that can take place without a background check. And so I think that the universal background checks bill is a really crucial foundational piece upon which then we need to build in other stronger new gun laws. And so I think it's a really good first step. Um, it's it's vital. We have to do that. Um, but it's certainly not even close to the end of what we need to do to fix our nation's gun laws and, and start to reduce gun violence. So why why is that? Why? For many years, I think, for the last really 20 years, you saw Democrats talk about background checks, and it's really kind of all they would right. talk about, right, as the be-all and end-all. What do we know? Of it? Because, you know, the and uh, the, the, the law is different from state to state. There's kind of like a tapestry of different mm -hmm. approaches. In some states, they do have this kind of comprehensive background check system where no matter where you buy a gun, you have to, if you can do it legally, right. you have to go through through a background check and other states don't. What do we know about the states that have had a comprehensive background check approach for some time now? What can we learn as we think about this doing something on the federal level? Yeah. So I think to step back a little bit more broadly, what we know, um, the experience from the states is that states that have 
collectively stronger gun laws, and that includes comprehensive background checks, and it includes other types of laws like bans on assault weapons and, and other restrictions, have lower rates of gun deaths, and that's suicides and homicides and accidents. And so, so we know that uh, stronger gun laws generally are effective. When it comes specifically to universal background checks, um, what we know is that, um, for example, in uh, there was a study done by um, Daniel Webster at Hopkins looking at the experience of two states that took two completely different approaches. Um, Connecticut implemented a universal background checks law um, through a process requiring people to get a permit before they're allowed to purchase a gun. Um, when Connecticut implemented that law, uh, gun homicides in the state dropped dramatically. I think it was 40 percent. 40 percent, yeah. Um, when Missouri took the completely opposite approach and repealed that same kind of law, gun-related homicides in the state went up 20 percent. So that's a pretty clear example of the impact that this kind of law can have, particularly when it's coupled with other stronger pieces like a permit uh, to purchase requirement. And, and the reason why, I suppose, is because in in Connecticut, you have to go through several steps to to legally obtain a gun. And in Missouri, when they took out that kind of provision, it was easier to access a firearm. And so the argument would be where it's easier to access a firearm, there are more gun deaths. I mean, it sounds very logical. Right. And, it, and again, you know, the other thing we know is that in states where there are more guns, there are more gun deaths, yeah. which, again, I mean, it is a deadly weapon that is designed and intended to be used to kill people. So that makes sense that when you have mm -hmm. more of them, uh, more people are going to be shot and killed. And, and, so, and we should note that background checks are part of a licensing system where right. in order to get a license, you have to pass right. a background right. check. And again, the, the bill that's being considered um, for January in Congress is just the background checks piece of that, not a broader licensing system, which is kind of the, one of the next steps in the, in the debate. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Democrats are starting with background checks and not something else like licensing or assault weapons ban yeah. or some of the other pieces we've talked yeah. about. Yeah, so I think that they're starting with background checks because um, the polling on that issue over the last five years, almost six years now, has been 90 plus percent of Americans support this policy. It has bipartisan support, it has support from gun owners, and so it is the most ripe and the most obvious to pass quickly. Um, because really there's, other than the NRA, for political reasons, there's no opposition to this. There's no real opposition to this. And so I think the idea is to get something like this done in a bipartisan manner early on to demonstrate that, you know, Democrats are ready to govern and really address this issue um, as opposed to just having empty moments of silence. Um, do that first, um, energize the community. You know, the, the gun violence prevention advocacy community has been working um, just tirelessly for years. And so give them this as, as kind of an early win that we can build on and then kind of keep going and, and move forward on looking at some of these other policies. And circling back to your thankfulness of oh, the yes. NRA uh, now seemingly having less power and maybe fewer resources, how do you expect the NRA to frame their opposition to this background check bill? And do you think they'll be less effective because now they have maybe a, a smaller podium on which to stand? So, I, you know, I would imagine that they would oppose it um, in the manner that they've done in the past, which is to frame it as a bill um, that just 
penalizes law-abiding gun owners for, um, you know, letting for giving their friend a gun or, you know, something like that. Um, you know, the, the NRA's mantra really is um, gun laws don't work because criminals don't follow them. So all gun laws do is punish the law abiding. Um, so I, I suspect that will be the theme. The thing that's interesting about the NRA is they uh, they don't like to lose. And so occasionally when it kind of comes right down to it and it looks like it is inevitable that a piece of legislation is going to pass. They sometimes kind of step off the gas a little bit. So we'll have to see what happens here. Um, you know, particularly since we do also have this odd dynamic of you had President Trump say both in that room when he um, had that strange meeting about guns. And then I believe he said it on Twitter as well. Parkland After shooting. Parkland, he he said he was supportive of strengthening background checks. So. Not that he can ever be taken at his word, but again, I mean, that that is part of the dynamic here as well. So this bill, uh, this uh, universal background check bill, will likely pass the House where Democrats will have a majority in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, wh what about the Senate? Where does something like this, a, a piece of legislation uh, that failed to pass the Senate in the aftermath of Sandy Hook in 2013, where does it stand uh, six years later? So I don't have high hopes um, that the current Senate leadership will be interested in considering a bill, um, a background checks bill. Um, uh, looking at Mitch McConnell's history in terms well, of Well, and how, the dynamic here is that yeah. he's received hundreds of thousands of dollars from right. the NRA. It's over, over a million if you count the independent expenditures. And he's up for re-election uh, in two years. And so the 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 political incentives for him right. are such that he would probably back the NRA. Right. But on the other hand, if you look at the senators who are going to be up for re-election in 2020, it is those folks are in more states where this is an issue that's important to voters, right? And so you have, you know, people like Susan Collins who are, you know, are, are going to need to demonstrate to their voters that they have been in a reasonable place on gun safety issues. And so that potentially um, could create some pressure um, on McConnell to, to try to bring some kind of bill to the floor. Chelsea Parsons, she's the VP of Gun Violence Prevention Policy at the Center for American Progress. Chelsea, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Igor Volsky. Thank you so much for joining us on this Thanksgiving Eve. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Be very thankful for all those at your dinner table. I hope you can be. I'm Igor Volsky. Bye-bye. This is the Bill Press Show.